Would you pray with me? Righteous Father, we continue in prayer thanking you that you sent Jesus Christ to pay it all for us. Lord, we fully admit and confess today that we had a crimson stain left because of sin. But God, we rejoice today because He has washed it white as snow. God, we gather here today to worship You for that fact. And so, Lord, bless the preaching of Your Word. Help us now in this time that we have today that we would find in You our all in all. That we would behold You in Your Word. And that we would become more like You. That we would glorify You because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For your great benefit and joy this morning, I'd ask that you would open up your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I would ask that you would also stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. First John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. John, the beloved apostle, writes these words. I write to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known the One who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away in its desire. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. This is God's word. Please be seated. Today we continue in our, in our uh, study of 1 John, where we have learned thus far that John writes about all things concerning Christ, concerning the Word, the life, the eternal life, to believers because, as we see in our text today, because they are believers, so that their lives might reflect their status as believers in holiness, in obedience, in love in assurance, which leads to right, intimate fellowship with the triune God and to our ultimate fulfilled joy. John writes to us about 
this fellowship that we have with God, and he wants all of these things, holiness, obedience, love, assurance, all things concerning the word to shape and to direct our fellowship with God and thus also with one another. And John writes this letter for this purpose to a people who are being bombarded by false teaching, specifically teaching that denies that the Christ, that the Messiah of the Old Testament is Jesus that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things spoken of, and that questions his deity and his incarnation. John organizes his letter into two main sections, and he started in 1 John 1.5 uh, under this proclamation that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the second section will start in chapter 3, verse 11, which is we should love one another. And we are currently going through John's first section where he has given the implications of the statement that God is light. And last week we discussed the beginning of a new subsection that John started on the commandment of love, this commandment that is both old and new, this commandment to love one another that finds its truest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We saw that the love of God is the sending of his Son, And that in Christ, we have received this love. And that because of Him, because of our union and our fellowship with the Son, we too love. The commandment becomes true in us. And by God's grace, we who are in darkness and did not know love have been given this love. And we are told to then love one another. We overflow through our communion with the God who is light, to love one another in a, in a passionate affection for their ultimate joy in God. And today John moves forward in this discussion on the commandment of love by answering this question. If God has given us his love by sending us Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation, then what else must be true of our lives? What else must be true? Not only that we must model Christ in love, but what else must be true of us in our lives as Christians? And I want us to consider for a moment this morning at the start, what captivates our hearts? What captivates our hearts? Is it God or is it the world? Are we this morning cultivating fleeting affections that are opposed to the eternal God and His gospel. As Christians, we still fight sinful desires because of our our sinful nature that we are born with. And so what are we to do if we have these desires waging war against our flesh? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to be passive? Are we supposed to indulge in these things? Are we supposed to continue in sin so that God's grace may abound? How are we to relate to the sinful desires of this world that are still appealing to us? And John answers this with this main idea from this text, which is, do not cultivate fleeting affections that are opposed to the eternal God and his gospel. Do not cultivate fleeting affections that are opposed to the eternal God and his gospel. And this is a negative main idea because the main command of this passage is a negative one, which is found in verse 15, which is do not love the world. So while the positive command is also true, cultivate fleeting affections, that's where we're ultimately going to go, 
John wants to tell us to not cultivate fleeting affections that are opposed to the eternal God in his gospel. And we do this in two main ways. We do this by realizing your gospel reality, which is found in verse 12 through 14, and avoiding all worldly affection in verses 15 through 17. Realize your gospel reality first, avoid all worldly affection second. And so if we zoom out and look at verses 7 through 17 as a whole, as we discussed in last week, John establishes the commandment of love. It's true in Christ. It's true in us now. As those who are in fellowship with the light, we should be loving others with this Christ-like passionate affection for God and His glory and how that is a natural and mandatory action of the Christian. And then he wants to get to, don't love the world. Don't love it. That's also what should be true in you. But he, he digresses first to set up this command in verses 12 through 14. So that's an overarching view of where we're going and how we're going to get there. But first, let's go to verses 12 through 14 and realize your gospel reality. Uh, we are about to approach in verse 15 the actual very first command of the entire letter. So far, in the first two chapters, John is not given a single command. He's given truisms. He's given facts and things that we are supposed to draw truth from and draw implications from. But this is his very first command. And before he gets there, he wants to lay the groundwork for the seriousness of this command. He wants to give some background and give the grounds for why he is saying what he's saying. He's going to give the reason why he's writing these things. And so, John first uh, enters in this poetic, artistic section that addresses three groups of people. He, He addresses little children, he addresses fathers, and he addresses young men. And if you've ever seen a a painter or or an artist sort of craft uh, their their work before, if you've ever watched somebody paint before, or maybe you are a painter or something, and they are very meticulous with how they they use every stroke, and they they try to shade with the right colors. Or maybe it's a a guy sculpting something, and he's very meticulous with how he uses the chisel and how how he shapes the curves of the figure that he's, he's making or, or how, he, how he cuts things off straight. And John here, in order to, to show his viewers, just like an artist does, what is important and to emphasize for people what he is trying to communicate, he, he enters this, this poetic section, as you can see in your Bibles, how it's, it's set off as a song or a poem of sorts. And he, and he writes with artistic and literary flourish to show us the realities that are true of us in the gospel. And so the first group that he talks to is little children. Little children. And he's not just simply introducing to, like he's not uh, addressing some, just the small children. You know, five years old and under, I'm only addressing you right now. He's actually addressing, this is a way of John addressing the entire Christian community. The entire Christian community. 
And we can see this in, uh, back in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, My little children, I do not write these things to you. I mean, I write these things to you in order that you might not sin. He does this in 2.18. He calls them little children again. He does this in 2.28. And so this is John's natural way of addressing the entirety of the Christian community as a whole. And he says to us, to the all Christians, he says first that your sins are forgiven in Christ. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Every single one of us who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ today have had our sins forgiven. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Or as John himself, as we saw back in 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, today in Christ, our record is clean. The sins that we were born with, the sins that we so often fall to, the sins that deem us as guilty before the judge, before the eternal righteous judge of the universe, that should send us to an eternity in hell in condemnation. Those sins in Christ are completely forgiven. We are no longer guilty before him. And today we resonate with the psalmist who says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose the Lord counts his iniquity not against him, in whose spirit there is no deceit. We stand blessed, joy-filled, completely guiltless in the sight of God because of what God has done in Christ for us. Oh, how much we need to remember, as John tells us here, that our sins are indeed forgiven, that we have been plunged beneath the flood, and we have lost all of our guilty stains. The second thing he tells all of us, the whole Christian community, he says, you have known the Father. You have known the Father. Today, believer, you know the Father. And this is good news for us today because the fact is that this is how we receive a positive report at the last judgment. As Matthew says in, seven, in Matthew seven twenty one to 23, he begins by saying, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather entry into heaven is based off of one thing. And God says to those who are not of his kingdom, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, through faith in Jesus Christ today, we have been brought into fellowship with God, and we know the Father. We receive a positive report at the end judgment. We enter into the kingdom of God because we know Him. We have been known by Him. And this is not only uh, good news for us in our assurance of our salvation, but also is assurance today that we are under the fatherly care of God. As Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That we are not to be anxious. That we are not to be concerned. We are not to be worried. Because it's our Father's good pleasure to give us good things. Even the kingdom itself. For all Christians, whether recent converts or mature, John renders the forgiveness of sins and our knowledge of the Father 
two vital aspects of the gospel that we are always to remember, that are critical for us to remember before he approaches this command. Next, John addresses two subgroups of all Christians. He addresses fathers or mature believers, and he addresses young men or younger believers. And he tells these mature believers, these fathers, he says, you have known the one who is from the beginning. And both times he addresses them, he says the same thing, and his repetition is for emphasis. He wants to emphasize to these people, you have known the one who is from the beginning. You have known the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He is the door through which we have entered fellowship with God. You have known the one who is the eternal Son. As the Creed says, the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate and he suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And John says, Fathers, you know that one. You know that one. This is the one who is from the beginning you have known. And while the primary reason to know Christ is and to, and to be reminded that we know Christ is for our salvation, for our encouragement, why do you think John would specifically tell the mature, you have known the one who is from the beginning? The fathers, you have known the one who is from the beginning. And as we had mentioned at the beginning, these people that John is writing to are facing severe attack from false teaching. They're, they're facing uh, attacks from heretical antichrists who try to teach falsely concerning the one who was from the beginning, who try to say, as John will later get into in, in 2.22, that Jesus is not the Christ, that question his incarnation, that question his deity, the reality of the gospel, and therefore, it makes sense that, God, that John would address the fathers, the mature in the congregation, and say, you know this one who is from the beginning. And so protect, instruct, remind the people around you, the less mature around you, that this is indeed true. That what these people are saying is false. And it's false teaching. Continue to know this one whom you have known intimately and teach others to do the same. Next, he addresses young men, or the less mature in the faith, the young Christians. And he reminds these young men of three gospel realities. Three. In the first one, he says, you are strong. In the gospel, believer, young believer, you are strong. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.19-20, through 20, where he prays that we would know what is the superabounding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty strength. 
which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens. In Ephesians 2, we learn that he has raised us with Christ and seated us with Christ with that same power. Young believer, you, all believers, you have the strength of God by his grace in you. And next he tells these these young believers that you have the word of God abiding or, or dwelling in you. One of the greatest gifts of the new covenant is that the law is no longer on tablets of stone outside of our hearts. But that as Jeremiah 31, 33 says, God says that the new covenant he will make with his people is that I put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Today, you have the word of God written on your heart, abiding in you by God's grace, which leads to eternal life. And third, he tells them, you have conquered the evil one. You're strong. You have the word of God abiding in you. You have conquered the evil one. The prince of the power of the air, the one whose kingdom is this world, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The one who tries to afflict the world with the false proclamation that you are indeed still guilty before God. You have conquered this one. But not because you have, but because Christ the one who is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent and has overcome him, passing through death to defeat the one who has power over death and has won the victory for us, we have in Christ conquered the evil one. As Paul says in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Satan in his domain, the evil one in his domain, are, they no longer hold sway over us. Christ our victorious king. He reigns in our hearts now. But why would John want to specifically tell younger believers in this environment these three things? You're strong. You have the word of God remaining in you. And you have conquered the evil one. Well, I'm not sure there are actually three gospel encouragements that are more appropriate to a younger generation or to younger believers than these three. Just like John's contemporary problem of false teaching, uh, people my age and younger face the sinfulness of our culture that is being forcefully impressed into every sphere of life. A common theme of today's world is for people to deconstruct their faith and to, and to go against what they were taught growing up and to find out what they believe on their own, all in the name of self-identified morality. It has become cool to apostatize. It has become cool to renounce Jesus Christ, to go on your own. Of course, this is just one problem among many but all of them lean back to the same common theme and is all fundamentally an attack against the gospel of Jesus Christ, much like John is facing in his day. But I want you to know, and John wants you to know today, God has told you, young believer, in light of all of this, you are strong. That you have been given the very power of God. That the word of God 
abides in you. The Word of God attests to the reality of the Gospel, abides in you, and you know it to be true. And that you today do not have to fear the evil one because you've already conquered him in Christ. Abide in God and find your strength in him through the gospel. Remind yourself of it constantly. So John presents these gospel truths to these people, to all Christians, to specifically mature, to specifically younger. And he's just giving them gospel over and over again. All to set up his command. All to lay the groundwork of this command. And that is where we now turn. After we realize our gospel reality, he says, avoid all worldly affection. He artistically crafted this this footing. How important must it be then? If he's going to spend so much time, so much effort, poetically and putting forward the realities and the truths of the gospel, how important must it also be then, the command that he's about to give? Answer, extremely. Extremely important. And he says to us, this command, don't love the world or the things in the world. This is the only exhortation in the passage, the first of the book. Don't love the world or the things in the world. It is the center of what John is saying. Everything hinges on this one negative command in 12 through 17. Don't love the world or the things in it. And he gives two motivations to not love the world. One theological and one eschatological. So one that has more to do with the nature of God and and what he gives us. And the second has to do more with what is coming in the end. So two motivations, one theological, one eschatological, one that has to do more with God, one that has to do more with what is coming. So first motivation is, your affections are produced by God and not the world. Don't love the world, Christian. Your affections are produced only by God and not the world. John says, in verse 15, that those who love the world do not have the love of the Father in them. These are mutually exclusive ideas. The love of the world, the love for the world, and the love of the Father. That of is kind of ambiguous. But as we will see, it actually is the love that comes from the Father. And in context, we see that from verses 7 through 11 as well. That the Father has, has loved us, that we receive love from the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. And the world here in John is not just merely the, the earth that we're standing on, but it's, it's rather the domain of darkness. This present evil age. John isn't so much concerned about the, the bigness of the world or, or the, the people in it even, but he's concerned about the badness of the world. As of this present evil age, it's outside the kingdom of God. And last week we said that Christ-like love is the passionate affection for God and his glory that will be expressed in self-sacrificial actions that push others towards satisfaction in God, if you remember. And John is saying that there is not a soul on this earth that has that kind of affection for God, that has that kind of passionate affection for God, 
that, that ends up pushing them to loving others and pushing others to be satisfied in God through self-sacrificial love and action. There's not a single soul with that kind of love that can also have an equally powerful affection for the world. It cannot happen. It is impossible to love the Father and to love the world. But you might ask, why, John? Why are these things mutually exclusive? Can I just love the world a little bit? Can I just have some affection for this present evil age? Why does it matter if I just have a little bit of love for the world while still being a Christian? Can't I have both? That's a common objection today. Why must I exclusively love God? And John answers with this. In verse 16, look what he says. He says, because. He makes this statement, the ground for John's statement, that the love of God must be exclusive. It is because all that is in the world is from the world. Cut out that middle section. Make it simple. All that is in the world is from the world, not from the Father. That is why this bold, polarizing statement that all who love the world don't have the love that comes from the Father is true. Because of this statement. It's because all that is produced by the world is completely opposed to everything that is produced by the Father. And you might be saying, why does that make any sense, John? Can't I love two things that are produced differently, that are fundamentally different at the same time? I can still like both, right? For instance, I can like a fine Italian restaurant that produces fine Italian cuisine, and it's even in Italy, and it has the best chef in the world. And I can love that Italian food. But I can also like Dunkin' Donuts and the fine food that they produce, that is donuts. These two things are fundamentally different. They are producing completely different things. I mean, they're both food, but... I don't eat donuts with Italian food. They don't go together. They're a different genre. They're different tastes. They're different everything. But I can still like both, right? Isn't that how, it's not how it works, John? So why is his statement about the production of things being against one another conclusive that the love for the Father must be exclusive? And the answer to this question is what John says in between in the rest of that sentence in 16 that we skipped over. The answer to that question is that what do these things, God and and the world, produce specifically? Where do they produce it? And how does that demand exclusivity for loving God? So what do they produce specifically, and where do they produce it? Notice John answers, pardon, first, with he says that all that is in the world, and he says, namely, the lust or the passions or the desires, the evil desires of the flesh are those worldly, sinful, enticing desires that arise from man's heart. That's the first thing he says that is produced from the world. These, these enticing desires that naturally are are compulsions of sinful men, 
Whether it's desire for money or for power, for, for prestige, for sex, for, for food, for any of these things. It's this natural compulsion of a heart that is enslaved to sin to want to do these things. No matter how much they offend God. As James 1.14 says, each man is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that's the same word. His own lust, his own passions, his own desire. And this is combined with, as John continues, the lust and the passions of the eyes, which describes all the things that we use to stir up those evil desires inside our hearts. We see things, we look at things, that looks good. And it stirs up those evil, sinful, natural, compulsory desires that John just talked about. And the third thing that John lists is the pride or the arrogance of life. Once again, this is descriptive of an inward passion or lust. Pride is something that arises within us. And it is descriptive of how we are naturally arrogant in thinking that we have more time than we do on this earth. And that we're quite proud of the fact that we accomplish things. And that we want to plan our whole life and get it all figured out. And we're playing God with our life. And James describes this very reality in James 4, 13-17. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And he describes what these people are doing by this phrase. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance or your pride. Once again, same word as we find in our passage today. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him It is sin. He's describing exactly what we are like. All that is in the world and from the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is in us. And that is the the answer to the second question that we asked. We said, what do they produce? Those three things. But notice where they are produced. These things that John are describing are not something that are external to us. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the the pride of life. The world and everything that is in it, John says, produces things that are inside of us. Lust, desire, pride. This is something that is in us inherently as, as humans, as sinful humans. And they're even still on us as believers. As 1 Peter 2.11 says, we need to abstain from the passions, same word, of the flesh which wage war right now against your soul. And the goal and end of all these desires that the world produces in us is found in Romans one twenty three, where we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things. Everything in this world is something that is produced in us these desires, these sinful lusts, and they all go against God, our Creator. And this, this inward desire, this, the fact that it is produced in us is actually the key to John's argument. Think about computers for a second with me. Computers, they only output what they are given as input. Now, 
You can think of AI and all these things like that, but ultimately AI had to be taught something, had to be created. It's code. A person typed something in, created it, it outputs whatever is consistent with what that person inputted. Or input. Inputted is not a word. But I'm on stage, so I'm allowed to say it. Um, if, (laughs) If all things in the world, apply this to what I'm about to say, if all things in the world or all things that the world produces are things that exist and are produced inside of people's hearts, if all that the world produces occurs inside a person in their affections, then it is truly impossible that they could ever have a true affection for God. Does that make sense? If all that is in the world produces in us affections, if our affections are produced by the world, and therefore we love the world, It is impossible for us to love God. Our input is going to be our output. The love of the world is the output that is produced because that person's code, their input, is still the world and its sinfulness. Loving the world, therefore, is proof that the source and wellsprings of your affections is your present dark domain. Is this present dark domain? not God. If you show affection for the world, if your affections are completely involved in the world and this sinful domain, then you are just evidencing and showing that your heart is really just a wellspring of what the world produces. Because if the love of God was being shown in your life, the kind that we talked about last week, then it would show that the wellspring of your heart's affections is the triune God himself it would only overflow in a passionate love for God that seeks to be satisfied in him and to exalt him. Love for the world comes from the world. Our love for the Father comes from the Father. Our affections expressed are just actions that are produced from the thing that is producing our affections. Calvin concisely summarizes this verse best, I think, and he says that the sum of the whole is that as soon as the world presents itself, our lusts, our desires, when our heart is corrupt, is captivated by it, like unbridled wild beasts, so that various lusts, all which are averse to God, bear ruin us. So friends, let me return to the original question. What captivates your hearts today? When the world presents itself with its sinful lusts, with its desires, with its appealing satisfactions. Are your hearts captivated by it? Do your hearts run to it? If so, friends, then that is where your affections lie. The world is producing your affections, your love, your desires. They're consistent with the lusts of the flesh. Your allegiance is still to the world and not to Christ. Now, at the same time, believers, we know that we still fight and wage war against these passions in our flesh. So why is John telling us this? Because he he told us, you are believers, you you are Christians, you have all these things. God has given you the love of God in Christ. He has given you new affections, a new heart. And so the wellspring of your heart should be only exclusive love for God. So don't love the world. 
Because if you do, you're being inconsistent with who you are now in Christ. Whenever these, these passions present themselves, and even though they might be enticing to your flesh, kill them. Because the world does not produce your desires anymore, friends. God does. Live in the affections that He has given you, that He has provided for you in Christ. Flee those worldly desires, those affections. Do not love the world because you have a new, a deeper, a truer affection that finds its source and its object in God. That's the first motivation that John gives. The second motivation is don't love the world because the world is passing away and eternal life is found in God. Don't love the world because the world is passing away and eternal life is found in God. John says in verse 17, And the world is passing away in its desire, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And here John looks forward to where these different desires or wills lead. And he does this by by pairing up the same word desire, the world and its desire, and the phrase the will of God. And sometimes we can just brush over the phrase will of God because um, we can make it about something else. But really, that's just saying what God wants, what God desires. And so he's showing us the different outcomes of these two desires, these two sources of, of affection. And think back in last week in verse 8 where he says that the true light has come, the Messiah has come with his messianic kingdom, an age of salvation, and the darkness is passing away. And he's saying the same thing here. The darkness, this world, these desires that are, are waging war against your flesh are passing away. They are dying. They will not last forever. Only the will of God, what God wants, what God desires, only that will last forever, will remain forever. And so John is getting really practical with us here. He's presenting us these two things. He says, do you want the lust of the flesh, which are certainly passing away? Or do you want the desire and will of God, which remains forever? He tries to make the choice simple for us. And so when we're presented, once again, with with these desires, with what the world has to offer, which will we give ourselves to? Which will we be captivated by? Are we going to really go with the one that is passing away, that is dying, that is only finite and is going to go away? Are we going to choose the one that lasts forever? Are we going to align our will with God's and depend on Him to do so in our hearts and live forever and abide with that forever. It's far greater, friends. Far greater. Infinitely greater. And as those who have tasted the blessedness of eternal life through fellowship with God and through His Son, why would we ever want to eat of the muck and the mire that is being devoted to destruction? Why? We shouldn't. We have true satisfaction in the eternal God in doing what He desires. That is where true desires are fulfilled. 
Let us run to the one at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us be satisfied in him. Let us be satisfied today in him. Don't love the world. Realize your gospel reality and avoid all worldly affection. So let's close with a few steps of application today. The first thing I want you to do is once again ask yourself, what captivates my heart? What captivates my heart? On a daily basis, when I get up, when I go to bed, when I in the middle of my day, what affections flow out of me? Do I love this world? Or am I overflowing in love for God? Second, I want you to identify what desires you have that are inconsistent with who you are in Christ. What are the lusts and the passions that most commonly wage war against your soul? Which ones have you given into this week? Which ones have you indulged in? Which desire that is passing away, that is so small and insignificant compared to the infinite desires of God, have you indulged in? Perhaps you struggle with pride. Do you boast in your arrogance today? Do you say, today I'm going to do this or that? Tomorrow I will as well? Next year, next month, next ten years? I got it all planned out, God. Do you desire your glory and success more than God's? Perhaps you struggle with different lusts. Do you indulge in sexual sin, in thought or in deed? Do you have an unhealthy relationship with food? Does your job, TV, the news, music, golf, your hobbies, even your family at times, and other earthly things absorb your attention and captivate your heart more than God does? Love your family, friends. But are they taking all of your affection? Is your affection for them an overflow of your affection for God? Third, depend upon God that he might stir your affections for him. Friends, if I've said it today or if I've communicated today, I'm sorry, but I'm not telling you that you can somehow work your way up and and get yourself, talk to yourself in the mirror every morning and get yourself to a point where your affections are raised for God. I'm not telling you to listen to a certain kind of music or to get yourself in a certain environment where you can overwhelm with some fake human wrought emotion. I'm asking you, just as God saved you in Christ to give you the affections that you now have, to also depend upon Him to continue to give you and renew these affections to you. God must produce these things in your heart because a love for God, as we saw, is produced by God Himself. We must commune with Him. We must participate in the fellowship that we have with Him. And just pray to him and ask him to give you these things. Remember your standing in the gospel and preach it to yourself. Commune with God in Bible reading and in prayer and become completely enthralled in the greatness and the glory of God. 
do these things because it is so infinitely important. Because the one who does the will of God, the desires of God, remains forever. So let us every day realize our gospel reality. And let us purposefully avoid all worldly affection. Let us not cultivate in our lives affections that are opposed to God and His eternal gospel. But let us cultivate affections that are for Him alone. This is the Word of God from 1 John 2, 12-17, which I now commit to your first study and your faithful obedience until Christ returns. And as the men come forward for communion, let us pray together. Our great Father, we thank you for how you have instructed us today from your word. God, we thank you that you have reminded us today of glorious truths that are true for us in Christ, that we have been forgiven of sins, that we know you, that we know you through your Son, that we are going to live forever, that we are strong. God, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for the, inst- the instruction that you've given us today from your word that our affections alone come from you. And Lord, as those who have been given new hearts, who have had the word put into us, who have received the love of God in Christ, Lord, help us to not love the world. Help us not to act inconsistently with who we are now. Lord, create in us a clean heart that loves you. Lord, we confess that we need you every day, every hour. We confess that even we have fallen to some of these sinful desires this past week. God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We pray that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.